0: Christian Moyex of Establishment Jean-Pierre Moyex in the right bank of Bordeaux and also in Napa Valley. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. Thank you for being here. So you were born in 1946. Yes. That's an interesting time
1: for many reasons. Well, I was a baby boomer, clearly, uh, but I didn't realize it at the time. (laughs) And your dad had moved from a different area of France to... Yes, from the central part of France, or more precisely the Corrèze, a very poor region, where they applied the, the right of the firstborn. Uh, happily so for me, my father was a second born, uh, so that he did not inherit anything, in a way. And that's why he started from nothing, and began uh, in 1937 as a wine merchant in Libourne in the company which I manage now for many years, and uh, he was a very talented man extremely talented, he was a, a, a word which is probably abused, he was a visionary, visionary in all senses of the term, which means, first, he was able to guess the quality of a wine in its youth. Pomol was almost unknown at the time, and he knew that Pomol would become a great appellation because he knew the way the wines will evolve, but I will develop that later. He was a visionary as well uh, in terms of people, you see. He was able I have been amazed so many times uh, he was able to guess at first sight the quality of a man or a woman. And that's very rare. And, and that was striking in my youth. And third point, but not the least, uh, he was passionate by art and contemporary art. And when he saw an exhibition, for instance, Which I did, uh, I visited so many times with him, he was able to guess the quality of a painting. Just from a single painting, he will guess the quality of the painter. It was amazing. So he he was a visionary in all senses of the the word. And physically, he was uh, a word which is not used anymore. He was a seigneur. And I don't know how I I will translate a seigneur. He was a man like Charles de Gaulle, let's say. Many people compared him to Charles de Gaulle. I was lucky in my youth to meet uh, Charles de Gaulle twice, you see, and uh, these are among the people who impress you so much at first time. The only other man who impressed me so much was President Obama when I met him years ago. You know, those guys have such a charisma that at first sight, you you, you feel like nothing in front of them. But I feel like that would be almost in some ways a tough
0: father to have, because, you know, as growing up, you sort of have to compare yourself to this incredible person. He
1: was extremely demanding, of course, Uh, he was severe. He was, uh, but he was respectful in the meantime, respectful of everything. And of course, you know, when uh, your parents, when your ancestors are gone for long already, Uh, You only remember the good parts, yeah. So what was your grandfather like? My grandfather, I mean my father's father, was uh, still a peasant, you know, those uh, that generation with a huge mustache. (laughs) And um, he was a severe man, uh, tough. He had clearly suffered in his life. And for instance, when my brother and I would have uh, lunch uh, with them, grandmother and grandfather, he would have always his cane, he used a cane. And his cane on the table, and if we were not uh, handling properly, he he would strike us with a cane, you know, the kind of uh, impressive uh, man, uh, a real peasant in the good sense of the word. He, He was a peasant. What were family meals like when you were growing up? Well... Again, my father was successful even in his youth, which means we, we always had a cook, for instance. So my brother and, and myself, brother Jean-Francois, will be back on him. He is one year older. Uh, we were having lunch uh, with a nurse in, in the petite salle à manger, we call it the small dining room. And then we will go and say hello to my parents or to their guests. Yeah. So it was kind of a chateau life on a modest scale. And where did you grow up? I really uh, grew up a few miles from here, uh, where my father and where I live myself after with my mother for so long, uh, more than 60 years, Chateau Videlot, which is uh, in the suburbs of Libourne, about one mile south of the center of Libourne, and uh, which is on the Dordogne River with a beautiful and very peaceful site. And myself, then I moved in 73, uh, I purchased a house from the neighbor and I lived next to my parents for so many so many years uh, on the side of the river as well that was a choice a deliberate choice you know uh, especially for me because I'm so I love the vineyard so much that if I lived in the middle of a vineyard I will work day and night. I'm able to leave the interview and work 10 minutes or half an hour, or even the whole day in the, in the vineyard. So the fact of having no vines around me and just the river, that beautiful Dordogne River, it gives a sense of serenity, which was very important in my life. What was the right Bank like in the post-war era? As far as I can remember, of course, it was... Um, it was a secondary country compared to the Médoc, which means we would uh, never consider ourselves as equal to the top chateaus of the Médoc. We don't even do it today, uh, except sometimes in terms of price. Uh, those chateaus in the Médoc are really seigneurs, seigneurie, as we say in French. Uh, on our side, you, you can see here, uh, we are just evolved peasants, if I can say farmers, uh, lucky farmers. Uh, so in those days, our prices could not match, of course, the, the prices from the Medoc on one hand. And when I would go to meet those uh, top uh, owners, I was very shy, honestly. Uh, uh, there were people living uh, abroad in the States or in Paris, and we were. I really felt like a young peasant sincerely. And it is absolutely due to my father, because he had that senior appearance, that he was uh, probably the first guy from the right bank to be welcomed by the Rothschild and by the Menzelopoulos and so on. And I took advantage of it.
0: But it also sounds like he was quite intelligent.
1: Uh, he, was, he, he was extremely smart, yeah. He was, so, so, he was extremely smart, but he was discreet, you know. He was never showing off, you know. He would let the other people speak and ma- make his own opinion uh, very fast, as I said. And then they will realize he he had a great culture, you see, fantastic culture and a unique memory. He will remember, uh, like Mr. Andre Menzelopoulos was the same I remember, uh, he will remember everything, every detail from 20 years ago. That's such a a big plus in life.
0: At what point did
1: you realize that he worked
0: in the wine business?
1: Myself, from early on. I mean, I I really began to drink wine... uh, before I was a teen and I loved it, uh, without excess, of course. And due to my father's authority, I never considered I, I could do anything else. So I, I was on, uh, on rails uh, and that's why I studied agriculture, agronomy first uh, in France, uh, in Paris. And I I never considered I would have any choice. Uh, If I had been entirely free, I think I would have become a lawyer and maybe a political man. (laughs) I could see that. Yeah. Because I I love to have a cause, a good cause, you know. And uh, I think there's so much injustice in the world that uh, I I would love to to speak for some people who have not the ability or the chance to, to express themselves.
0: I can see that a little bit in your business approach too. You don't always pick the obvious choices. You know, maybe it's not the same thing as helping kids in Nepal, but there is a certain championing of a cause. When you buy things, by which I mean wine properties, you don't always buy the most expensive, the most well-known name. Sometimes you buy a name that has been neglected for a while or is little known and needs a little... Yeah,
1: it's absolutely true. Um, I love challenges. And since I begin with my experience to have a deep knowledge of terroirs, when I see a neglected terroir or something which due to the fact that the owners are too old or whatever, uh, are not properly cultivated, that's where I emphasize uh, rather than purchasing a chateau which is at its peak, you see. So that has been my goal for many, many years, Yeah, to to try to uh, improve the culture in all senses, by the way. So were there people
0: that you tasted wine with when you were a
1: young man? Yeah, I would say uh, while I was in France, of course, always with my father, uh, who had a very definite approach of the wine. And and it was already, even if he he didn't speak about the wine, that's something important to say, we'll develop. Uh, uh, He will speak of wine in terms of, uh, uh, not with a lot of uh, wording, probably sometimes with a reference to literature or art, but uh, not a lot of wording. He he will never use more than uh, five words to describe a wine. But you know, the surprise for me and for us speaking with my brother is that we almost never spoke about wine at home. It was almost, uh, speaking of money or religion or sex, we, we never did, of course, because uh, it was too coarse. My father loved to speak literature and art, you know, so that was our main topic. Uh, I mean, when we were older, in our know, as teenagers, we didn't speak about wine, yeah.
0: I guess I'm just a little curious how your dad got to be that way because, you know, it sounds like his father was not so much a literature man. And
1: so was it that he desired very much to be that way or. You know, he, he was, uh, he got some talent, uh, by, uh, some genetics. Uh, I mean, I compare him more recently to the success of François Pinault in the world. You see, first they were good friends and, uh, you have no real explanation why was Mozart such a top musician. Not that I, I pretend my father was a genius, but he had that talent. he was. Uh, I'll give you an example. My grandmother was always shocked when my father was eighteen and probably penniless, he bought his first painting by Monet. You know uh, how can you when you are eighteen? Monet was very inexpensive at the time. And my grandmother told him, but mon pauvre Pierre, uh, why did you spend your money to purchase a a painting like that, when at 18 you should rather enjoy yourself and enjoy life? You see, so that's a perfect example. Uh, That's what I said he was a visionary, you see. So you don't think that there was someone in school or someone that he knew that had influenced him in some way? He told me, you know, he, he went to school to the, what we call the certificat d'étude in, uh, in the deep Corrèze. Uh, you know, my, my grandparents li- live in a house without uh, the soil was earth soil, you see, just earth. And he spent part of his youth uh, taking care of the, of the cattle. Uh, so, no, uh, uh, very honestly, I, I think he was uh, just talented by nature, yeah. But there was a fair amount of immigration to Bordeaux from Corrèze, like the Boree family. Definitely. That was an important diaspora, if I use the word. Um, Well, as I said, first, because it was so poor in Corrèze. And arriving to Bordeaux, many of them, of course, were considered like intruders. That's why so many of them stayed in Libourne, uh, as if it had been a natural barrier that Dordogne River before getting to Bordeaux. And were many of them were successful in that sense that they were very hard workers, you see. And I would say myself, uh, for instance, uh, being by far less talented than my father, I'm a very hard worker, so that's why I succeeded more or less, let's say. And my father was a hard worker, but able to as I said earlier, to spend most, most of his uh, private time with literature and art. Was the Monet that he
0: purchased at 18 the same Monet that he sold to purchase Petrus later?
1: Oh, I don't think so. You know, he had many Monets uh, for a while, <laughs> many monies, and which was honestly another wonderful aspect he will sell the ancient ancient as, as much as you can uh, call monet ancient the paintings from his youth and purchase a contemporary artist renewing all the time and uh, y- using that word which i remember very well uh, mon petit uh, speaking to me uh, you need uh, the art Uh, to uh, give you a challenge, to provoke you, to provoke you seriously, you see. Uh, So that's why uh, Monet is entirely digested uh, and it had no more interest for him in his later years. He would prefer to struggle with uh, Francis Bacon and guys like that who are provocative uh, and that's so much more challenging uh, for you.
0: So how did he develop some of those relationships with the local growers? What started that process? People like Madame Lubat that he...
1: Well, he was extremely well-educated, uh, <laughs> without education at first, but naturally well-educated, if I can express, and very charming, especially for, for women, and uh, extremely diplomatic. Uh, very slow moving. He spoke with a beautiful voice, very slow voice, which means he even, uh, uh, he didn't speak one word of English, but even the English speaking people will understand his French because he, he, he spoke uh, with that kind of speed, uh, uh, and a great charm. So back to Mrs. Luba. Uh, she was much older than him and, uh, She was a great lady, in her sense, very different from my father, of course. They got along, he was just uh, uh, selling the wine as a wine merchant, uh, small quantities at first, then I think he became exclusive of uh, the sales of Chateau Petrus in 1952, I still have the contract in fact. And uh, slowly but surely, since she had no inheritor and her niece, who lived with her, had no inheritor as well, he became involved in uh, not only in the management but the in the ownership. Uh, Mrs. Lebas was a great lady. I remember her very well. Uh, she was tall, uh, unusually tall at the time, and she always wore big hats. But seriously, big hats—you know, something like thirty inches wide. You see, uh, <laughs> which was—it <laughs> was still possible at the time. Uh, what was very unique about her, which normally you will not appreciate, she was convinced, honestly convinced, that her wine was the best in the world. She was convinced uh, and honestly convinced, so she conveyed that message to all the visitors. Not bragging, just uh, being convinced. You see, and uh, uh, my father helped, of course, to, uh, to promote her own message, and um, it worked uh, after many, many
0: decades. It seems like your father really forged some key commercial relationships
1: in the in the fifties, in the post-war era. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, yeah, that was a strange. It, it was rather easy in that part of Bordeaux, I mean, on the right bank. He did that with so much diplomacy that as far as I remember, uh, without provoking too much jealousy, a little bit, of course, but not, not too much, which was uh, not easy because the, the growers between each other were, were probably jealous, many of them. Uh, Then he moved to the Médoc, especially after he purchased the Etablissement Duclos in Bordeaux. And uh, that was another field. And uh, he seduced many top-goers in in the Médoc as well and developed that Etablissement Duclos, which uh, my brother has brought to another level. He, He was a fantastic man, honestly. But also, I mean, in the export markets, he
0: really forged some close ties in the northern countries, Holland, Belgium. Uh,
1: The fact that he he did not speak a word of English, as I said, he developed first uh, a family company in the northern part of France, which was a big market for Bordeaux. I mean, the region of Lille, uh, deep north. Then, of course, Belgium, which was very... Easy to conquer for him, uh, knowing that Belgium is still our main country for for the company, main country of exportation, which is kind of uh, very unique, even in Bordeaux. Uh, Then he he went further north, a little bit of Germany, England, because we had a good uh, salesman in England. And he paid one visit to the U.S. uh, in 1945. A uh, short visit and uh, one week in New York and uh, going with the, those planes who land on the water, flying from Ireland, if I remember well. Uh, and it's a very interesting visit because he told me I arrived to sell some wines. The first man I, I met uh, who was in charge of the import of uh, French products in, uh, in the States at the time, he sold uh, all his wines in one day. And then he had uh, one week of holidays, he told me, in New York. And one of the guys uh, who was on the plane with him was a scientist. I don't remember his name, probably he told me. And uh, so he said, uh, since you are free, Monsieur Moix, why don't you come uh, with me? I have a meeting with uh, Albert Einstein. So my father always told me, I spent one afternoon with Albert Einstein. Uh, I don't think it brought him a a, a lot because he was not a scientific at all. But it's funny to think uh, your father (laughs) met Albert Einstein at the time, precisely in 45 Yeah. So those are anecdotes. But my father was a man of strange anecdotes. And, you know, he, he told me once maybe, but he never bragged about meeting Einstein, which anybody else
0: would do. That was also the same period of time where Pomeroy was starting to make an impression on the British market, which was the traditional Bordeaux market, through people
1: like Waugh and Harvey's of Bristol. Yeah, Harvey's of Bristol, Harry Waugh, Edmund Penningroff's cell, those were the old timers. Things were so different, you know, that we had no imprimer at the time. We were so relieved to have no imprimer, no stress in the spring, you know, and people will arrive roughly now, end of May, beginning of June with a beautiful season, they will test the wine and... Harry was the nicest man who said, oh, he was in Pomerol, the wine so beautiful." you know, that kind of description. Uh, oh, they are a little sweet or they are a little tense. And, and that was it. And uh, we didn't have to, to worry about uh, special uh, uh, ratings, let's say. Uh, anyway, so those are other times. And it is true that uh, he did a lot for Pomerol. First, in a way you welcomed people. Uh, that chateau Videlou where, where I lived, as I said earlier, the walls were covered with paintings. You know, in, in the old style, sometimes you would have two or three paintings above each other. You see, like uh, the Barnes collection at a much lower level, let's be clear. But that that's will be the best comparison, the Barnes collection. And people were so impressed by a man of his stature, physics stature, as I said, slightly like General de Gaulle, and who will not speak about uh, about wine. He will speak uh, and he will serve you the Petrus uh, 61 as if it were uh, just absolutely his daily wine, you know. Uh, he, he was fantastic. He, he was a great comedian in that sense. And that will impress uh, a lot of people, even people absolutely very important or much wealthier than he was, It was not about that. It was, and he would describe uh, such paintings, explain uh, uh, Jackson Pollock to somebody who, an American who was, uh, uh, who should have known Pollock much better than my father, and explain, that was the most fantastic, he would explain the sense of a painting, you see, the meaning of a painting, and to people who were supposed even to be professional. So I have seen so many artists and so many art dealers visiting my father and getting kind of uh, an explanation from him. That's maybe the most striking character I I will remember from my father, explaining a painting. So what was the situation of land ownership in the Pomerol zone at that time, in the 50s, 60s? It's always difficult to say prices were not the same because uh, everything being relative, uh, prices were already something. But it's clear that Prices in Pomol compared to Poyak. And I will need to check was, were probably three times less when today Pomol and Poyak are roughly the same, speaking of price per acre. So it was much easier to, to purchase estates whenever they become, they, they became available. And my father moved again very slowly. When I joined the company in 1970, we must have had uh, five or six chateaus at the time. and I developed myself, I'm sorry to speak about myself now. I developed myself, uh, made, uh, purchase a lot of estates, developed farming, you know, farming when you cultivate for somebody and of course you, you give him a, a yearly fee. Uh, and maybe at some ex, at some point, uh, very precisely in 2000, we had up to 20 chateaus. And I, w- I realized uh, that we were, I was losing control, you see. Losing control is not exactly right, but I, I mean, I could not be as precise as, as I would have liked. Uh, and speaking, of course, we had something in the States, we'll be back on that. I could not be as precise in my care of the, the vineyards and even the, the blendings as if I were more limited in quantity. So I listed those 20 chateaux, I remember, and I made a line uh, after 10. And we got rid, one way or the other, of all the other chateaus. It was a big relief, you know, a big relief because since then, I mean, precisely 2000, I was able to concentrate on the chateaus which are worth the effort because, uh, uh, let's understand, if I cultivate an ordinary terroir and if I give the love I'm still able to give to those uh, vines, to... You know, it's a little, a little bit of a loss. Uh, Not pretentiously, because I can improve the quality, uh, uh, speaking out of 100, from 80 to 83, for instance, or 84, you see. That's 5% improvement. Is it worth it? You wonder. But if you can improve the quality from 92 to 98, uh, then that's something uh, worth it. So this is really what I did. And since then, I have a much clearer vision of uh, my role as a grower, I speak. Because at that time, you sold off some properties in Fronsac. Yeah, the Fronsac is one of my failures, my most serious failures. Because when uh, I acquired Chateau La Dauphine and Canon de Brême and so on in 1985, I thought it was sad to have in what we call the Libourne, the Libourne area, to have Saint-Emilion uh, doing very well, Pomol extremely successful. And just next door, Fronsac, which... Uh, was kind of a commercial disaster. So we we concentrate our efforts on Fronsac in the late 80s, early 90s, and it was a failure. In that sense, first that the I was not followed by the growers. You know, they were. I, I went. I went to many meetings. I said, let's do something together. And there were still those guys fighting between Fronsac and Canon Fronsac, which makes absolutely no sense. Uh, Anyway, so that was a failure on that aspect. And a funny story, you know, when I arrive. I say, we cannot cultivate in Fronsac in the same way as we cultivate in Pomerol, which means in a very expensive way. But after uh, one year or two years, the guys, very good workers, uh, they said, but Monsieur Christian, you don't love us. We have an old tractor when the new tractor is for Pomerol. And uh," And of course, uh, after three or four years, uh, we cultivated in Fronsac in the same luxury way that we did in Saint-Emilion and Pomerol. So we we are losing money year after year and my, my accountant said, but Monsieur Christian, why do you do that? Is there a specific purpose? Why you want to lose money in Fonsac? And one day I gave up, yeah. And uh, of course, the the, the next uh, buyer thought he would do much better. He didn't succeed either. He sold again the vineyards, yeah.
0: So you started with a family company in 1970, but you made an interesting choice in that you went to California for UC Davis in 68. So before you came back, you went to the States, which is well, somewhat of a unique I, choice.
1: I was an uh, agronomical engineer in Paris uh, in, uh, in early 68, and then I was only 22. I, I thought it, it was too young to join the family business, especially again with an authoritative father. You see, I wanted to a little bit of freedom. And, uh, so I went to California, uh, 68, 69, uh, University of California. Davis was kind of an easy choice to be. And besides we had a good family friend in San Francisco named, uh, Van Der Vort, a charming man who was our importer for the West coast. So it was kind of a protection for me. It was uh, like uh, the American uncle, very, very nice man. And uh, so I, I, I enjoyed the going to Davis. It was, uh, it was well, the California uh, in the late 60s was something else, you know, it was uh, bubbling. It was, uh, there was no Silicon Valley, but the universities were so active. Uh, I really enjoyed, I really enjoyed that stay. I would have stayed longer, I must say, if my father had not called me back. And uh, uh, here we had uh, they had, I was not there, uh, two disastrous vintages, 68 with a lot of rot, and 69 for some reason, uh, poor weather, very low uh, yield, and uh, if I say, hey, uh, enough fun, <laughs> you need to come and uh, take care of the family vineyards, which I did with, uh, with pleasure. But, 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 can you imagine a young man uh, after living uh, between Davis and San Francisco, uh, coming back to Libourne? <laughs> it, it was tough, I would say. So I always dreamt of returning to California in one way or the other. And in uh, I visited California many times in the 70s, not really looking for something, but mentioning to... My dear mentor, uh, Bob Mondavi, and my dearest, Marguerite, who was so protective to me, which I I love so much, and such a wonderful and smart woman, I told them on a few occasions that if they had something to... uh, Recommend to me in California, I uh, will come, and uh, that was in eighty one. Yes, in eighty one. Finally, uh, I met one more time uh, the Mondavi's in Paris. At the, well, the Plaza Athenee, <laughs> and uh, I said, by the way, uh, you think of me? He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I must have, uh, I may have something to advise you. And then he wrote me formally that. Uh, his assistant uh, Robin Lale uh, would be uh, happy to meet me and uh, so I, I went to California at the end of 81 met Robin Lale uh, even more important I met the, I visited the vineyard before meeting Robin Lale the famous Napa now famous Napa vineyard and I found in love with that vineyard at first sight it's, uh, it was a rainy day I will never forget I was with a young trainee whom we had here, Dan Baron, a very nice guy, very, very American, and we got along so well. And uh, uh, I said, "Prepare my trip because uh, at that time I visited many vineyards, and we even went up to Mendocino, down to down California. And the day we we visited Napa it was love, love at first sight. I love that vineyard. I describe it on a rainy day as a jewel box. You see, and I, I said, Daniel, uh, to Daniel Baron, Daniel, one day we will produce a great wine together on that soil, you see. And then we made the joint venture, and then it's uh, it was a wonderful long story with the uh, ups and downs, like an adventure in life. But speaking of ups and downs, I mean, the soil in that place has a little bit of... Uh... The slope, the eventual slope, is very important, you know, uh, very often... People describe uh, Dominus, since uh, that Napanuk vineyard uh, produced the Dominus estate, became Dominus estate, they say it's valley floor. No, 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 it's not valley floor. It's uh, a foothill, which is quite different. The slope is uh, 4% average, on the top part it goes to 6%. I am a biker, for instance, and I can tell you that uh, 5% slope, you feel it when you bike, you see. Uh, So, uh, no, no, definitely uh, there's a slope and it changes everything. I I would not have gone for a flat vineyard. But even if here in Pomol we are flat, but we can discuss the way we correct that uh, flatness, if I can say, by a a few tricks. But in, in California, it was essential for me to have that slope. And I'll tell you why, you know. Uh, When I wrote uh, in uh, 81 uh, to my future partners, uh, Robin Lale and her sister Marcia Smith, which was very protective to me as well, I wrote what I called the philosophy of a joint venture. And the first sentence, I will only produce wine on your soil without irrigation and without acidification if I am not successful with that theoretical approach, I will return the vineyard to you without any uh, de-damagement. I don't know exactly the word. That's what I wrote, you know. Uh, they were kind of surprised of that approach. And if I had not been successful, once you fail, you know, for me, it's, you, you lose money, you, it doesn't matter. I forget. I turn the page. But I, I happen to be successful and you know, the, today, what's the most important thing about that estate? Dry farming. And if you, it's so obvious, if you want to get the feeling of a terroir, the taste of a terroir, and I really mean the taste, you need to be dry farmed because uh, then we know that those roots go about, I don't exaggerate, 15, 20 feet deep you see, and they get the substance of, of those soils, you see, good or bad, but at least they get the substance. When if you if you irrigate those poor vines, the roots go up and, and, and they drink uh, that uh, almost daily water or weekly water, and th- there's a feeling of laziness, you know, the, the, you don't get the best, you, you get something uh, artificial, so... It's it's an essential approach for me that uh, it's a philosophical approach, I would say almost, that uh, uh, dry farming. So, is
0: it true that at some point early in you slept in the vineyard at Dominus?
1: It's true. Uh, I, I know it seems like a joke, but for me, my, my love of the, the soil is, it's very physical. Uh, as you may see, well, during the interview, I move my hands all the time. I'm very tactile. And uh, that feeling of, of the vineyard, of the soil on uh, spring night, I think it was in May 82, Uh, early May 82, uh, I spent one night. But, uh, I mean, it has become kind of something uh, extraordinary. It's rather ordinary. Let's say I was camping in the vineyard for one night, which is absolutely not a big venture, except that I was not aware of rattlesnakes at that time, you know. It was
0: sort of amazing because you came in at this moment in Napa where it was a fulcrum point, really, because you are the person that I know that knew Maynard Amoreen that partnered with the daughter of John Daniel. And that's like a different Napa for me. Right. And then you were part of this other wave that was moving forward. And I think the evolution of Dominus is in a way you can read how Napa thinks about itself in that, that evolution, because one of the key things that has seems to have changed over time at Dominus is the blend but also it's the management of tannins, which seems to be a bigger question for Napa in the last, say, 20, 30 years.
1: Yes, Oh, well, there are many questions uh, within one question. L- let's speak of the past and, and the way uh, I was linked, of course, with Menard Amarin, whom I uh, respected so much. Even if uh, in those years he was very critical of Bordeaux, I remember. And I welcomed him on a few occasions in Bordeaux with his... Uh, a little team from California. And slowly but surely, I tried to convince him that uh, there were really good wines in Bordeaux. He he was a man of great quality. I have great memories with him, including the day before I signed my joint venture, we had dinner together and uh, he he gave me a blind tasting of uh, Petrus against uh, Ingle Nook of the 50s. Um, A very interesting challenge, I must say. Um, They ended, uh, we were six people, uh, they ended uh, equal, which was perfect. So, a great respect for Menard Amarin. He was not a man of the the vines, he was a man of the wine, and uh, with an idea uh, probably that California will will become uh, well-known worldwide in those years, yeah. Uh, the man who was the most impressive uh, in terms of deep roots in California was Andrei Chelidze, clearly. And Andre and Dorothy, I'm obliged to speak of Dorothy, in the, like for Bob and Margaret, a fantastic couple. Andre was uh, was wonderful. He had which, which maybe Menard Morin didn't have it, or I missed it. He had a sense of humor, fantastic sense <laughs> of humor. Andre. So, I have beautiful memories with him, including working at uh, BV for the Harvest 68, which was uh, quite an experience. Um, Andre was, uh, and he had a a sense of quality, including uh, dealing with tannins, uh, with those big tannins of California. So, Andre was very influential. I had Raf Kunke as a teacher at Davis. Uh, In those years, you know, Uh, malolactic fermentation was still uh, kind of an unknown. I mean, at least it was not controlled. So, yeah, those were the early years. Would I dare to say that there was a link between those um, early years and present Napa? Maybe so. I mean, I look very old by saying that, but that's what you suggested. It is a fascinating world. And, And, you know, this is really what I was looking for because when my father realized, put me in charge of Petrus uh, in 1970. I mean, what can you expect uh, as a young man? What can you improve? Okay, I did my best for 38 years to maybe improve and to do the best for a given uh, year, uh, given uh, weather and so on. But uh, arriving to California, and it may still uh, be appealing to some people, It was a wild country and... uh uh, a land of fantastic opportunities you know you could try anything you, you were successful, success so you may meet success or failure but you, you, you had the possibility here the possibilities are extremely limited you see uh, moving the, the width of the rows from 1.45 to 150 which I decided two or three years ago why because the, the tractors are getting a little wider you see okay that's a move but uh, I mean it's a very limited move you have to agree California you can do anything, uh, close spacing, tight spacing, uh, uh, doing this, doing that. There's a sense of freedom. But of course, freedom with reason if you like to be successful. So were there things that you had noticed in
0: California
1: or were thinking about in California that you brought back to France? Do we bring more from Bordeaux to California than from California to Bordeaux? I I will need some thinking to tell you. Our teams exchange so much Almost myself, of course, on a daily basis, but uh, for our team on a weekly basis, we exchange the trainees. We exchange so many things, so much information. Such Cooper, uh, his barrels are a little uh, overburnt, you know, be careful. uh, It's fantastic Uh, at all levels. uh, How is the Petit Verdot doing? For instance, we, uh, that's an anecdote, but, uh, recently, we planted some Petit Verdot in Pomerol. Uh, I asked the, the appellation to authorize Petit Verdot in Pomerol, and I planted a few blocks, a very small quantity still. Uh, so, because we have the experience of the Petit Verdot, there is Petit Verdot in the Medoc, but I know more about Petit Verdot in California than in the Medoc, and so on and so on, you see. So, yeah, the exchange is, is, uh, is permanent, absolutely permanent. Uh, both sides learn a lot, yeah.
0: Did you have realizations about ripeness in one place or another that affected your thinking?
1: Ah, that's a very interesting question. Let's speak of California first. In the early years, of course, I had the Bordeaux approach. I tried to pick a earlier with Daniel Baron, which he, he practiced in a way. Uh, then he, he moved to Silver Oak. And we were producing naturally wines between 13 and 13.5. Uh... The critics, or the, the welcome was, uh, was a little difficult, uh, more than difficult. I mean, nobody was interested in our wines at first, I must say, in the early years of Dominus. Why? Because the acidity was a little higher. The wines were maybe lacking a little bit of uh, flesh. And um, a few people uh, loved them, but most people didn't like them. And uh, we could not sell the wine in the early years, I remember. We really suffered. I was helped by my dear Ab Simon, who was the head of uh, Chateau and and without him, uh, I would have sunk. Uh, Anyway, we changed the style slowly but surely, picking more mature uh, grapes. Moving from a little bit of Merlot in the early years, which was uh, probably a mistake, at least for that that ranch, to more and more Cabernet Sauvignon, a little bit of Cabernet Franc, a little bit of PV, Petit Verdot. And today we produce wines between 14 and 14.5, which have a big success. That's a trend. Um, Nevertheless, some of the early vintages of Dominus, which were not appreciated at the time, have become quite good uh, from a from what they say, at least because I, I don't have anything left. Yeah, so that has been a tenancy. That was a general tenancy in the world, and probably we applied it to our vineyards as well. And it is true today that, uh, the, for instance, uh, the recent vintages of La Flore Petrus Uh, All of them, even on a a slightly weak vintage, like uh, maybe not 13, we are at 13.5 in 2013, but otherwise we are between 14 and 14.5. But if that alcohol is uh, supported by a beautiful tannic structure, it's okay. But it's the max, I agree. That's one of the big problems of viticulture today. It has clearly to do with the viticultural practice. And I'm partly responsible, I can discuss that. And of course to the global warming, that's, that's very obvious, yeah.
0: But at the same time, I mean, here we are in Pomerol where there's almost no Cabernet Sauvignon. And then it, if I go to Dominus today, there's not much Merlot.
1: Well, there was still a little bit of Merlot, uh, six rows, I think, up to last week. And uh, we Tibeted them uh, this week. Uh, so there's no more Merlot at ad- Dominus, yeah. Uh, why? From my own experience, maybe I didn't pick it at the right time. If I picked it uh, too early, it was clearly acid. And as soon as, uh, after a point, it, it became too, how could I say, too neutral, you see, and it lost all its character. So Merlot is a very difficult variety in terms of date of picking. Because as soon as you go over the board, it becomes flat, you see, and, uh, yeah, fleshy maybe, but, uh, no, no character. And in California, at least at Dominus, uh, at Napanook, uh, th- this is what I found myself. So we, we gave up the, uh, we, we don't have a single vine of uh, Merlot anymore.
0: Because when I taste something like Petrus, what's really amazing about that is how it can be so deep and so structured at the same time that it's generally 100% Merlot when I'm tasting it. And yet, that seems to be a trick that's hard to find somewhere else in the world.
1: Yeah, (laughs) well, Petrus is a a unique terroir because we always say... Petrus is a clay soil, which is true and very unique, that little bump, uh, which we can see from me on the top of the plateau of Pomol. Uh, but it is not because it is uh, such a unique wine producing Merlot on clay that any place in the world uh, can produce a good Merlot from clay. The answer is very simple. It is a very unique clay which we have at Petrus, and uh, that's why the Merlot is a perfect fit. and uh, It's still a mystery for us, but it's a fact.
0: You have a unique perspective on this, because for me, sometimes in my life, I wonder is it really the same vine material that other people are using, but you actually had access to the vine material? Oh, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I think I replanted now by myself almost uh, all of Petrus in, uh, in my lifetime. So, uh, no, no, there's absolutely nothing special. There's a good adaptation, and we made mistakes even myself in my uh, long period, uh, a good adaptation of the, the rootstock to a given soil. That's essential, that's essential everywhere, by by the fact, uh, in Palmol, but in California as well, adaptation of woodstock. And I could discuss woodstock at length, uh, even in California today, where there are trends, you know, which people follow without knowledge, usually, uh, because the neighbor is planting uh, 101.14, everybody wants to plant 101.14. And the old trick in California was the good old St. George, who produced those beautiful wines of the 40s and 50s, and nobody wants the St. George. I'm still planting St. George, and people say, but are you crazy? Hey, gosh, they produce those beautiful wines. Maybe they need a little more edge. but first the St. George is a ripestries and goes deep. So, of course, uh, if you want to to dry farm, the St. George is still very adapted. And that's what they would have used the BV. Of course, you know, uh, we inherited, uh, and I sometimes uh, I, I, I tell Francisco Coppola about that, we have the archives of Ingle Nook, which I want, by the way, to return to Ingle Nook. Uh, and I, I have the old uh, data on, on Ingle Nook. Of course, they never irrigated it, uh, the, it was dry farm. And it was uh, St. George, it was ripestries all over, you see, and they gave those beautiful wines, structured, deep, serious wines. Yeah, so uh, I still love St. George. No, no, just to say that uh, uh, rootstock is essential everywhere, everywhere in the world, yeah. And it takes time to get the best adapted rootstock to a given soil, yeah. So, Robin Lale had the Ingle
0: Archives available? That yeah, you know?
1: and very sweetly, she, she brought them to me when I bought uh, the partners out in uh, January 95. Uh, uh, yeah, January 95. That's almost like a Da Vinci
0: notebook in a way.
1: You know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, we have a charming PR at Dominus, Cassidy, and I know she's working through it, but I, I really want to return them to Francisco Pola. I have no no right. Last time I had dinner with Francis, I brought him the key of a, a knee-bone grave, you know, which is, why should I keep that? I have no reason. He didn't know what to do with it either. You know.
0: But in terms of the, the conversation between Napa and California thinking and then French thinking. When you came back in 70, you started to emphasize green harvesting here in France, right?
1: Yeah, it did not come exactly this way. It was a a, a morning of uh, uh, June 73. Uh, I arrived to Petrusas every morning and all of a sudden the crop, the coming crop, struck me Uh, As impossible in terms of quantity, as we say as a joke, there were even uh, grapes on the stakes. You see, Uh, the the crop was uh, potentially so huge, and I know it ended uh, in some places uh, something like uh, ten tons an acre, which uh, in Bordeaux is unheard of, happily so. That I say we must do something. I mean, uh, you you know, the the bloom was uh, too good. Uh, and, yeah, we had too many clusters, big clusters. So I said, we must do something. And what can we do? And the, the only answer was uh, uh, we should try to cut some of those clusters. And I began to do that. Uh, it was the uh, end of June uh, '73 with a few friends, young people, whom I found students probably. And I did it myself. And it was so shocking to people that I had to uh, harvest, if I can say, those green uh, clusters and I would put them in plastic bags and I would go and throw them in the river at night uh, so that nobody would know. Of course, it reached very soon such a scale that I could not uh, keep everything and I had to let it on the soil. And that was a shock in the region to, to you cannot uh, believe. I mean, people, uh, even our workers, they didn't want to do it. Uh, they insulted me. Uh, you want to ruin the estate, Monsieur Christian, they called me. Uh, even I attended the church in Saint-Emilion, and uh, the priest one uh, there. was there uh, just in front of him. He said, and I condemn those who throw on the soil what God has given them. Ooh, you know. So so it, it was a shock. And the first man probably who, who agreed with me uh, on that approach was uh, Thierry Manoncourt, who was the owner of Fijac. He was an agricultural engineer, which was quite rare at the time. And he said, Christian, I think that's a smart approach. Some people treated it w- with humor. And I, I remember uh, not that I was bragging about that uh, new approach, which soon began to meet some success. Uh, Mr. Lambert, a uh, charming old man, was the owner of, uh, of Chateau de Salle here in Pommel, the biggest estate, 100 acres, and uh, one day he gave a speech, he loved to speak Latin, a uh, charming man of the old style, and he said, uh, Christian, he, uh, he thinks he has discovered everything by uh, practicing crop thinning, he said, "But." If he he had read Columel, uh, a great agronomist in the first century uh, after Christ, uh, he would know that uh, Columel wrote, uh, listen to that. He wrote, and man to get a good crop should be able to get rid of the excessive fruit and keep only the leaves which are necessary to a good maturation. This was written, you know, honestly, in the first century. So it means the right amount of crop and the right amount of leaves as well. And de was absolutely not practiced at the time. I, I was not the first one to practice de even if uh, in California, of course, we learned by necessity uh, the uh, canopy management where we were not aware of that. So that was a great exchange. I would say that, Canopy management will learn from California, uh, crop thinning, will, uh, it was kind of an inspiration uh, I had in '73. On the Medoc side, they were more reluctant, and only when uh, Corinne uh, Menzelopoulos arrived in '84, she spent one day with me, I remember, and she was convinced, she then convinced uh, her team. And uh, now it's common practice, and maybe, of course, like everything to an exaggeration, But is there any top chateau in the world who will consider producing a great vintage uh, without a little bit of crop thinning? I don't think so. One of the bad consequences of excess crop thinning, of course, is that it increases the the amount of alcohol. And that's, uh, that's, but you can have have the best of two worlds, yeah. That's interesting
0: that it was 73, because that's also the last vintage where there was some stem inclusion at Petrus, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Because when I say that uh, I cropped in, which I, I cropped in a few hectares, not everything. And with Jean Claude Beruay, we we were a little uh, uh, worried that uh, the wine will lack structure. And in, it's true that we we added some stems in that uh, theoretical approach to give some some structure to the wine. Yeah. Now it's been several
0: years, and have you followed the progression of that? Because uh, I certainly haven't. But I think it would be interesting, the idea of Petrus with some stems.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, no, we will never consider it anymore, I think. Uh, especially since the stems in those years were not uh, perfectly ripe. They were much greener than they are today, where they begin to be brown. At that time, the, the stems were green. Honestly, I think it's a mistake. Yeah, I know many people followed that after because they had read or heard about that, and they thought it was a principle of vinification. Uh, I will never do it again, let's put it that way. But I just mean, have you followed that bottle? Have you seen the 73 now? Yeah, 73 ended to be a weak vintage everywhere kind of uh, pleasant but really weak because of uh, dilution it was not uh, not not uh, the yields were too big uh, all all over bordeaux uh. Uh, so maybe petrus is a little more structured than uh, than many wines but is it due to that amount of stems we we added or to the natural uh, uh, reaction of clay on on a given vintage i I could not say so when did you first meet jean claude barraway uh, Jean-Claude Berouet uh, was met first by my father as a trainee. Uh, he was 22 in 1964, and he met my father, and my, he, he kind of, uh, at, as he, at his own surprise, I mean, Jean-Claude very surprised, uh, my father said, oh, why don't uh, you, you come and work for us? So it was before I arrived, since I arrived in 70.
0: But in a way, you were both young men.
1: We were. We, we worked together. Uh, our offices were next to each other. We worked together for forever. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was, a, it was like a 40-year partnership, uh, absolutely. Right? absolutely. We were extremely close. I mean, uh, even privately, to uh, two couples. Uh, I was there when he met his wife and so on and so on. So, so yeah, yeah, we were really living together. Yeah. How did he affect your thinking
0: about wine?
1: Or likewise, how do you think you affected his thinking wow. about wine? Let's see. Myself, I am more turned on the vineyards. Everything is in the vine. And for him, of course, being an enologist more so than a winemaker, we don't like the word winemaker, uh, he, he will be more on the wine. Um, his approach, almost philosophical, and which fits which fits so well, my, my father's approach, was wine is for drinking, you see. So, Clearly, he will l- love the wines and Merlot was such a fit for him uh, to be gentle, to be pleasant, to give pleasure. Uh, for me, especially in recent years, I like a little more concentration, maybe. And that's why I'm practicing crop thinning to an extremely precise point, cutting the third cluster, sometimes the second cluster, thinking a lot about it. I was still discussing it last night with uh, uh, California. I had the statistic this morning, which I was working. The average of uh, number of third clusters in the different blocks at uh, Dominus, you see, Uh, and that's uh, the average is 2.5. So is it worth it to cut the third cluster now, or should we do it when we begin the crop thinning? That's the kind of question I answer early in the morning, you see. So I said block 20, for instance, where we have 2.5, I'm very precise, 2.5 clusters per vine, we should cut it. Another block, uh, block 7, where we have 1.5, we will do the third cluster with the crop thinning. That's the kind of precision we have in the vineyard. So back to your question with Jean-Claude. Jean-Claude is more about wine and more about vines. And for me... With, uh, uh, you, you know, I, I try to diminish the role uh, of uh, winemakers. That's why I don't like that word, winemaker. I prefer enologists. It's a science, you know, and, and it's more philosophical somewhere. Because anybody with good grapes can make good wine. Anybody, including you. What I mean... Uh, uh, the grapes are the most important, and it is so obvious. I mean, and and those poor guys, uh, uh, some of the flying winemakers who have to try to produce a good wine with poor grapes, gosh, uh, 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 I feel sorry for them. And uh, sometimes I tell them, I tease them, how can you make wine with such poor grapes, you see? So grapes are es- essential. So that's our pro- And, y- you know, since I left Petrus, it's a fascinating experience. It's a second youth for me or a third uh, career, I don't know, to give to the other chateaux, uh, specifically uh, La Flapitrus, Trotanois. The right amount of concentration uh, uh, I like. Uh, and probably the recent vintages I have made are a little richer, a little more concentration, a little higher level of tannins as well. That's what I like today, it may be an evolution. When you get older, you, you need uh, uh, stronger wines. Wines have become kind of an elixir for me and uh, medication almost.
0: I mean, that's my read as well, especially when you follow a, a wine like Le Fleur or Petrus, in terms of the viscosity in the palate, the weight of it.
1: Yeah, it, it's a very easy answer. You know, when I was in charge of Petrus for so many years, I like the, the gap between uh, Lafleur Petrus and Petrus to be big, let's say, or serious. And now, uh, where I have no uh, kind of constraints, you know, uh, I love to Lafleur Petrus to be at its best. So I'm extremely, for instance, our selection of the 2016 vintage is so severe that we end with a small quantity, but uh, for me, it should be as good as it could, you know, so there's no sacrifice at that level, which is not worthy.
0: We've only developed a friendship fairly recently, and I didn't know you when, 10 years ago and 20 years ago. But when I read books and things that you're quoted as saying, because when Jefford came out in '02 with the New France, you know, there's a long quote from you that says, in Bordeaux, you really have to play to finesse. And we don't try to be a boxer above our weight because that doesn't end well. We can't play with the same ripeness that Napa and Australia have. We have to do the Bordeaux thing. But it does feel like the wines have gotten a little riper
1: here in Pomerol. Yeah. Well, you know, (laughs) I didn't remember what I said in 2002. With you, I'm perfectly conscious because I give that interview in the early morning. Sometimes I give interviews after lunch, and I'm not in perfect control, I must admit. Uh, No, but more seriously, I've always been against the trends, you see. And uh, when everybody was going for big wines, I thought finesse is more important. Today, that there's an exaggeration. That's why people love so much that 16 Vintage, because the acidity is higher, it's fresh. I say, no, it's not fresh, it's vivid. Okay, you love it. i go for stronger uh, deeper wine so i'm against the trend that's true
0: that's a really interesting way to look at it and i think uh because of your prominence in different regions you're often referenced so it's interesting that there's always this
1: it's unconscious but uh, you know i I remember again my father when he purchased art i mean People arriving uh, at Védelot and seeing uh, uh, aggressive Francis Bacon, you see, but Jean-Pierre, as they call him. Jean-Pierre, I cannot uh, have a, a lunch in front of a painting like that. Oh, my father said, no, 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 no. You will get used to it. You know, it's a classic already for me." You see, so th- that's a little bit of my approach. Yeah, not to harpens too much with
0: the literature and the points and things, but you know, when I read Parker from the Bordeaux wine buying guide from several years ago, he really um characterizes Jean-Claude Barrowway's winemaking style as ultra conservative. That's a direct quote. And I, I just wonder if having gone through that with him championing the garages and Michel Roland in particular at a riper style, I think if I owned a property that was so prominent and someone that was as prominent as Parker called my winemaker ultra-conservative in terms of ripeness. I think I would have to reflect on that. Has it affected your
1: thinking at all over time? Hmm. I'd love to be able to answer that in a clear way. Let's say there are three people in, that, uh, in, in your question. There is Parker, the most important, and there is Jean-Claude Béret, and there is myself. And that's a triangle. And the relationship between the three uh, is not a line. That's the only way I could answer, which means it, it was a tricky, uh, it was always very tricky between the three of us. Just on that specific matter, at least, yeah. Uh, and uh, I will not have a more precise answer, honestly, on that. So I saw Jean-Claude
0: Barraway speak last year. It was the first time I'd met him. And he said something really interesting, uh, which was that 50 years ago, you didn't want the wine to have a gout tawar You didn't want the wine to have a taste of the soil. And the reason you didn't want it to have that was because that was like a peasant wine, like a rustic wine tasted like that. But, you know, when you hear that, because essentially at this point, he's talking about when I began my career to say 50 years ago. That's the start of his winemaking career.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And you contrast that idea with... The current idea which is very Burgundy's, is very fashionable people want very much to express certain sites soil types and crews I mean it's uh, almost unheard of
1: yeah I don't want to say that I disagree with Jean-Claude because we have uh, been so close um, it goes with the definition of terroir and that word terroir has been so abused you know terroir in my youth, was the soil. That's easy to understand. Anybody will understand. Then we introduced, uh, we not me, but uh, it was in, in the air, that we said later on that terroir was a combination of the soil and the climate, which I think remains as my definition. I think that's what terroir is. Then, some people, probably most of the winemakers, they introduce the fact that terroir was the soil plus the climate plus the man. I find that stupid myself, but completely stupid. Man has nothing to do with terroir. It's so immodest to put the man in terroir. Sometimes I tease uh, some of my old friends and say, yeah, if you become ashes and if you put your ashes in the vineyard, then you are part of the terroir. I agree, but it's post-mortem. No, I'm, I'm serious saying that, uh, which means man has no influence on terroir. Man has influence on style of a wine. That's completely different. It has nothing to do with terroir. Terroir for me, and I don't know what I said exactly uh, 45 years ago, uh, has always been a, a key factor. Did it translate as a peasant wine? I, I don't remember sincerely. Uh, but terroir, I mean, no, it has always been the key factor. And climate has become, uh, we are more conscious. Maybe because in those years we were more fatalist. And today, I will not say that we have any kind of influence on the climate, but it is true that through the the way, let's say, last week, you know, we protected, uh, especially on that plateau of Pomol, we had the wind machines uh, against the frost. That's not an influence on climate, but we, uh, canopy management, all those things we do today is to, uh, let's say, make the climate, when it is adverse, to make it less uh, damageful, I will say. But back to your original question, no, I've always been, I think, uh, and that's why probably I used to define myself uh, as a peasant in the early years, I lived with my boots uh, from morning to evening, Uh, terroir is the key word.
0: So we just, as you referenced, experienced in Bordeaux one of the worst frosts since 91 or maybe even 56, and a lot of people experienced a lot of damage. Yeah, it's so sad. One of the things that you did at Petrus when there was a threat of frost in the past was that you brought in a helicopter. Yeah. And, you know, you still see that legacy today because I think you were the first to do it and, and it caused some controversy. In fact, uh, helicopters were sort of banned for a while in yeah. certain
1: times. So, yeah. what was the, what happened there? And the-, uh, the frost we, we have known in the past half century or a little more, 56 was a frost uh, mid February. So, it was a, what we call a winter frost. Uh, uh, We went down to uh, minus uh, 23 Celsius, and then we know that at that level, the Merlot uh, dies. The Cabernet is more resistant by three, four degrees. Anyway, so we lost most of our Merlots in in Petrus. I was young, but I remember uh, that terrible uh, view. And by the way, a little anecdote. You need some luck. My father had a good friend who was uh, an agronomical engineer from the early century. Big art collector. And he visited my father uh, in 1956, if I remember correctly. I, 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 my brother and myself were with him when we were able to tour the veneers again after those uh, two feet of snow. They began to melt. That was the very end of February. And we arrived at La Fleur Petrus. And the vines look uh, like winter. And that guy said, but uh, Jean-Pierre, speaking to my father, those vines are dead. He had a little knife. He said, those vines are dead. My father, you know, you, you, my father was not a farmer, you know, let's be clear. He he said, but no, it's impossible. The vines are not dead. Yeah, 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 the vines are dead. Of course, he believed his friend. And in uh, early March 56, he bought huge quantities of the 55 uh, vintage, which was a huge vintage and uh, not very much in demand at the time because it was considered to be average in terms of, because of the quantity. So, uh, it, it was one of the turns of his fortune, you know. <laughs> Thanks to the frost of 56, it, it's like uh, Napoleon and uh, the Rothschild in in England, when when you know things before the other know, you have have a big advantage. Anyway, so 56 winter frosts, it's completely different. In my lifetime, I have had March 31st, 77. That was a spring frost damage. Of course, the vines were not as uh, grown as we were recently. It pushed again, but we made a very late vintage uh, in uh, 77, very poor quality. Usually after a big frost, we made poor quality. 91 was a very severe frost. We went down to, uh, let's say, minus uh, 7 degrees, uh, which would be uh, 20, almost 20, 21 Fahrenheit. And uh, I was in England having lunch, I remember, with uh, with... Hugh Johnson, and there was that cold front coming from the north. Uh, We lost 20 degrees in one hour. That was unbelievable. 19 degrees, to be precise. So I I flew back here and I said, we love the frost of the century. Nobody believed me, of course, but I got equipped. At that time, I was a a helicopter pilot, so I, I sent my trucks to get ties and we made a fantastic night at Petrus, burning with people running, even moving the burning ties around. And I was flying with the helicopter during the whole night which which not uh, night flight was uh, prohibited, but I I did it uh, because the helicopter should be combined with heat on the soil. Otherwise, uh, you can blow down uh, cold air and the damage may be worse. Uh, so, uh, we did a good job, but it was such a severe frost that I flew, uh, I flew in the morning over the, the region. It, it was terrible. Everything was frozen. And Petrus survived as an uh, kind of uh, ilo, I would call it, a small, a tiny island of green. But altogether, it had been damaged, you see. Uh, and they never recovered properly. So, Uh, So that was the most severe frost of my uh, career. And uh, the nights of March 26, 27, 2017, we had a frost which was not as severe. We we went down uh, in Pomol to uh, 30 degrees on the plateau, only 28. But for some reason, and some places down to 25, for some reason, the damage was very severe and more severe than expected. Uh, While it's still unclear, because you you have been traveling around, you have seen some very damaged vineyards, and next to it, uh, less severely damaged, it's a little complex to analyze, it has to do with the culture of the soil. Those guys who do not cultivate today, and that's a tendency, or that was a tendency to keep uh, grass in the vines, there have been much more damage because it kept the humidity. Vineyards which were very flat, well-cultivated, have been less severely damaged. So it's, it's very complex. So what you're saying is that at moyax you uh, plow, you till the soil. Extremely important for us. We cultivate our soil. Same thing in California. In California, it's a little more... Uh, everything is studied. I was discussing this very morning, you know, do we begin to cultivate seriously block seven and eight uh, in California? Because we have had such a rainy winter in California, 62.5 inches of rain, that we, instead of cultivating everything early on in March and April, we are cultivating slowly so that to dry the soil at a regular speed, We cultivated the low part of the ranch, we are cultivating the middle part of the ranch, and I may wait uh, uh, even a few more weeks to cultivate the upper part of the ranch so that we dry the soil slowly but surely, you see. So that's the kind of uh, thinking we we have all the time. It is not a recipe. Nothing in the winemaking, in the wine production, is a recipe. Neither the culture, as people will believe, uh, nor, of course, the winemaking. No recipe. Uh, This is why... It's a daily work, and it's a work of love. That's the, the, the key word, you know. And Because if you don't love it, hey, you, why should I decide at 5 this morning whether we cultivate today, block 7 and 8 in California? Honestly, if I don't love it, why should I do it? But I can see why here it makes sense
0: so much to till the soil as you do, because it's a heavy clay soil, and yes. you need to get the moisture out.
1: Absolutely so. Whereas,
0: if it were a different kind of soil,
1: you might take a different approach, which is maybe why it's not a recipe, right? Yes, 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 yes. Each chateau, and you have seen the soil variation between neighbors, it's fantastic. Almost everywhere, but especially in Pomod, I must say, on that little plateau, which is only 500 acres, it's so small. Each one deserves a a culture of his own. It's uh, very dedicated. Even in the, in the sprays, you know, we analyze the, the petioles and we say, oh, this block needs a little bit of potassium and this one a little bit of calcium. I mean, just as an example. So it's uh, it's fascinating. I mean, at that level of precision, that's why when I hear that word precision today, Uh, so abused as well, Uh, precision, uh, that's not fun, the precision. It's a lot of care, a lot of attention. Another word is purity, purity, purity. Everybody is pure today. To produce a pure wine, what does that mean? You should have no disease vines. Out of our vineyards here, we have 8,392 vines which have a yellow Ribbon. And those are still, they have a a disease of one kind, uh, of some kind, mostly virus, of course. Those we never pick with the top wines, you know. We pick them apart and, of course, the wine is disqualified. Same thing in California. In California, you did not meet Todd Mostero. He has become kind of an ayatollah of virus vines. You know, sometimes you you do exaggerate. Anytime we see a vine disease, we cut it. Even if it is just before harvest, sometimes I say, but you are three weeks from the harvest. No, no feeling. He cuts it, you know, and we replace it. So this is important. Some people, among the top growers, sometimes they tell me, but Christian, those disease vines, they had something, they had a complexity. Come on, they had no complexity. They had the fact that because they are diseased, they have a lower alcohol, and of course, that uh, lowers the, the, the alcohol in the blend. No, we should eliminate those virus vines, and let's say, virus is of course the main, main problem for future in, in viticulture around the world, yeah. But I could speak of values for one hour, so that's too long. <laughs> because in both
0: properties, you
1: let the parcels that you pull up stay fallow for several years, both in Napa Absolutely. and in the Palmarau That's always a fight with the vineyard managers on both sides. And I remember, again, Thierry Manoncourt, uh, he could afford it with the surface of uh, the acreage of uh, Chateau Fijac. The rule we learn is seven years. That's what I learned at school, seven years of fallow. You cannot afford uh, financially, even if I'm not obsessed by finance, uh, seven years of fallow. So, we uh, they want five years, I want three years. We compromise usually at four years, but it looks pretty long. Four years, <laughs> you know,
0: is it an issue with nematodes? Like, yes, oh, yes, yes, and yes. thus playing into viruses. Oh, what yeah, I'm yeah, yes, yes, very clearly. Yeah, very clearly. What I'd be curious to hear from you because you have worked with, you own, you farm, you represent for sale so many different key Pomerol estates and properties. So if I were to understand some of them better, how should I think about the
1: difference between Trotenois and La Fleur Petrus? Uh, first, I would say the new La Fleur Petrus, which has been very smartly, um, I speak from my son, uh, uh, recomposed of three big blocks, you know, there is the original Lafla Petrus, then the block around where we are today, on the, just in the center of Pomol, and then that block I purchased recently, a few years ago, O9, uh, uh, next to Le Pin. I don't know if you, you saw that block. Fantastic quality, uh, between Le Pin and Trotanois. So, in Lafla Petrus, we have uh, today, the blend is composed of about 20 elements. So we have those layers. With a lot of finesse typical of the graves. Trottanois is much more square. The vineyard itself is a square with four big blocks, a good perfect edge now. It was a little weak in the 80s, now it's perfect edge. And there's half clay, half gravel, which means it's almost always successful on any vintage, Uh, no advantage to one or to another. That's the success of Trottanois. But due to that clay, it has a tannic structure. And, and it has the shape of the vineyard. It's a one which is very square when Lafla Petrus will be round. And uh, we see Trotanois from here. So we are precisely one third of a mile, very precisely. And, and you see the, the two wines are so different from each other, cultivated precisely in the same uh, way. Fascinating. Yeah.
0: Because you have the same vineyard team,
1: your team Same works. vineyard team, absolutely. The same philosophy, details, as I said, block to block, between blocks and blocks, but uh, same philosophy. So if I were to better understand that layout
0: of the Pomerol Plateau, the gravelly parts, the maybe parts that are a little more sandy, from your perspective, because, you know, I've read the books, and I've walked some vineyards, but you've really worked with these properties for decades. So... What are some of the key things I should be keeping in mind?
1: Well, the great wines of Pomol are produced on the Plateau. That's a clear cut, and it's nobody's fault. I mean, it's just a fact. So the three types of soils in Pomol are gravel, which is most of the Plateau, uh, clay, which is mostly Petrus, and a few others, and sand. And any vineyard in Pommel is a combination of those three elements. And depending upon the proportion for each uh, estate, you have variation. You know, I cannot wait for your friend. I know you interviewed him, uh, Mas Nageti, very talented man, uh, very dedicated, uh, who recently produced those fantastic maps of Napa Valley. I mean, what a work. He came to see me, uh, i say 15 years ago, I'm not sure, to do the same thing in Pomol. <laughs> and at the time I was very worried. I was uh, uh, I said, oh the world should not discover that some of the top chateaus of Pomol they have a, a block one mile away, blah 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 So I discouraged him to do that map of Pomol. Today, I'm encouraging him. I mean, uh, and this is why I made official the fact that La Fla Petrus has three big blocks, uh, which are all on the plateau of Pomol, but which are slightly distant from each other. There's nothing wrong uh, about that, as long as you, of course, keep only the best blocks for your final blend. So it, it, it would be fascinating to have his, his book and a big surprise it will be for for many people that applies to in the region, in Bordeaux, there are very few vineyards which are a single block. That's an advantage, and not necessarily, because you, you can get a little more complexity if you have, uh, uh, let's say, in Pomol, one block clearly on gravel and one block on clay as well. Sand is a different uh, thing, because on sandy soils, the wines may be very charming, very appealing, but they never have the character, which is uh, that uh, typical character of Pomol.
0: I know you do blending here with your team and you just described how there's different soil types even on single properties and that they play out in different parcels and of course there's vine age and but when you sit down to the blending table and this is also something that comes up at Dominus because you have it divided into different parcels and they go about selecting the blend now that's that's a skill set that i don't have and i've never done that i've never selected a blend for a finished wine what would I be thinking about if I were to walk into that room with the team and maybe your son and start to talk about how you should do a blend?
1: Let's say from my long experience, I have a very clear definition in my mind, at least, of a perfect wine. And for me, the perfect wine does not exist because the perfect wine escapes to human control. And the best wines I had I tested in, in my life were wines with mistakes. There is a very talented uh, tester in England named John Armit. John Armit is a, was a great Im- importer in England twenty years ago. Very talented man, and I gave with him a testing of wines with a fault. You know but including uh, a great mouton or child, including this or that, uh, with a fault uh, when it escapes. You know, uh, Cheval Blanc 47, one of the best uh, wines in the world, it has one gram of volatile acidity, which in any other wine will condemn the wine definitely. So usually when it escapes to human control... And that's, that's maybe even for us and for our team. We are so much in control that I wonder sometimes if an accident cannot be positive. You know, that old Chinese proverb, who can say what is good or bad? But let's not run for accidents anyway. We prefer to control. But if there is an accident, sometimes there is that uh, for instance, Dominus 01, which is one of the very best. We had an accident, you know. We lost control at all. Uh, the young guy at that time uh, lost a little bit of control. Uh, and then sometimes it gives a touch of, uh, how could I express it? Uh, Otherworldly, you will say, yeah, m- maybe a character which escapes to the definition. So but l- l- sorry l- let's forget that <laughs> when I could when I participated to a blend that's not my regular <laughs> approach. So yes, I have the idea of a perfect wine. And a perfect wine it, it does not exist. When I produced the Petrus 89 I had the feeling on that day that it was almost perfect. Uh, I have had that feeling very rarely in my life. But then I remember teasing Bob Parker with all respect. Bob, don't give me 100 because I have no margin of progression, then. <laughs> you know. And I believe it, you know. 100. What does that mean after all? Yeah. So let's be serious. What do I look for? Of course, the the ultimate goal is equilibrium, uh, harmony. Harmony is uh, is a key word in our lives. I mean, at least if we want to be happy. Uh, So I don't like to uh, bumpy life uh, myself. Harmony is really what I look for at all levels. And that's what we we look for in the wine. When the wine is harmonious, uh, it can be harmonious at all levels. Uh, A petit château can be harmonious sometimes. It gives you pleasure. But uh, there should be no asperité, I should say, no... Should be harmonious. And besides, class is something which is so, so surprising. Uh, Wines have class or or don't have class. I don't dare to say it's like people, and it's beyond control somewhere. And sometimes uh, when I taste so many wines, I say, oh, wow. This wine, I didn't expect it. It has a touch of class, a touch of class, it appears. And of course, the great wines have a lot of class, which compensates sometimes the lack of this or that. So we could always do better, but it's fascinating because it's not as uh, blending all the best vats together. You say, okay, that's done. It does not work like that. Uh, Sometimes a little bit of addition of a vat, which at first do not seem uh, qualified to participate to the final blend, uh, will give a, a touch of complexity. It's fascinating. And I cannot wait to see the, the Petit Verdot I have planted recently to give. That's why I asked the, the syndicat de Pomerol. I'm sorry, that's another story. There was a big meeting in Pomol a few years ago. Uh, And uh, during that meeting, somebody said, we should adapt to the change of climate. We should uh, authorize different varietals in Pomol because of the um, global warming. And one man, one of my friends said, why don't we, uh, oh, spoke in front of the, the, the crowd, uh, the small crowd of Hall, why don't we authorize Sira? Oh, usually I'm very discreet in those meetings. I say, no, 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 no. no way, no Sira in Pomeroy as long as I am here. It will be crazy. We, we, we will lose our, our character, our distinction. Uh, we will uh, so, I said, if you like to to do something a little original compared to Pomol, you should authorize Petit Verdot. And they followed me. So uh, Petit Verdot is now written in the authorized varieties of Pomol. That's very recent, uh, four or five years ago. And uh, of course, I, I had to apply my my suggestion. So we began to plant some Petit Verdot. And the first year we produced was uh, 2015. And we had beautiful Petit Verdot, uh, and a few barrels. Uh, in La Fleur Petrus, which added a little you know, Petit Verdot adds spiciness, which is sometimes interesting in the Merlot, uh, the danger of the Merlot being uh, to be flat, as we described earlier. So that spiciness will be important. Uh, Sadly, in uh, 16, the Petit Verdot, which did not have long roots in uh, 16 yet, with a severe drought we had, there was no crop in sixteen, uh, but I have big expectation for a little bit of Petit Verdot, uh, which we should not abuse, it's probably one or two percent, but uh, on that Merlot, it should be a very interesting complement. Yeah. So all of this about the blends, blends are, are, are a fascinating experience, you know, and a, a very, like so many experiences in life, very humbling experience, because sometimes you do not succeed. I remember uh, producing the blends of Hosanna, for instance, a tiny estate uh, next door, 10 acres, you know. One year, the result is beautiful if you find the Hosanna 10, I remember. We had 13 testing sessions to produce the, the blend from a, a 10 acres vineyard. Can you believe? 13. And, and one day it was a miracle we found it. If you find the Hosanna 2010, it's too good to be true, you see. But it was... a. A big effort, and we could not find it. And one day, probably I don't remember, we changed one barrel of such block compared to another, we switch with a... It's a fascinating experience.
0: And I can see why that property in particular would be a little different for you, because it's more Cabernet Franc and more old vine Cabernet Franc Absolutely. than you use in the other properties. You have to find the special key to unlock that. Yeah, Yeah, it's true. And in fact, kind of like the Petit Verdot story, you're planting more Cabernet Franc from that vineyard material in Hosanna in the other properties. You're increasing the percentage of
1: Cabernet Franc elsewhere in Pomeroy. Absolutely. Knowing that Cabernet Franc is a very difficult varietal, which many people give up because it's difficult, Uh, first, there are two main problems. One, the quality of the material uh, you, you get is difficult. There are bad and very few good uh, cabernet Franc in terms of uh, vegetal material. That's the main problem, clearly. Second problem is that cabernet Franc is very sensitive to weather, not only during the bloom, affecting quantity, but affecting quality. If cabernet Franc does not get perfectly r- ripe, and I would say under our climate, it's one year out of two. Then you get that green character, a tea leaf, uh, which you cannot get rid of. And then uh, that follows the wine. Yeah, So very fragile variety. But when a Cabernet Franc is great, like at Cheval Blanc from time to time, there is a refinement in the Cabernet Franc, which you cannot find in any other varietal. And Hosanna
0: is a property,
1: as several in your
0: stable are, where you've added drainage.
1: Uh, That that was an inspiration from Cheval Blanc. I must uh, give them credit for that. Uh, When you are in Pomerol, just in front of us, it's so flat. I mean, uh, Pomerol, the plateau varies from uh, 35 to 37 meters. That's all. So there is practically no slope. And, you know, you get those storms in the summertime, which brings two inches of rain. Uh, That's a vineyard which used to be flooded for one week after a big storm when we purchased it. And then we we said, how can we do it? The only way and to make it simple, we did wells 20 feet deep. And then you create an artificial slope, beginning drainage at zero and going down, not to the six feet, but to three to four feet deep. That's enough to give a slope. The problem, what do you do when your well is full? Of course, you need to pump that water. But to pump the water, you need to go to the low part of Pomol, which happens to be uh, half a mile away, and you have to cross other neighbors. Uh, So it's always a little delicate. You have to ask for permission. Happily so, I know everybody in Pomol, and I ask many, many of them. I think we have seven or eight wells in Pomol today on that plateau. And I ask them, uh, by the way, uh, can I cross your your land or go through your alleys to send the water down Pomol? And usually we make contracts, you know, they say yes, usually, because we are on good terms. Sometimes I buy their wine, many times even. And I say, on the reverse, I authorize you to send your uh, drainage in my well. So that's the kind of a deal we made with success, a very friendly deal, and it works very well. There's a reverse to any middle. I remember on a a year of drought, uh, they called me Christian. Did you stop your wells? Did you stop pumping your wells? I said, yes, yes, of course. So we have, uh, we manage our wells. Uh, As soon as we have a big storm, we put all the wells for two or three days. And of course, if we have a drop, we don't use those wells. But uh, it's a a big improvement in terms of uh, drainage and quality of of the the wine.
0: And that drainage issue is another reason why, when you look at the Pomerol zone, the vineyard rows tend to go in perpendicular directions at different parts of the Pomerol area and it's because they're they're following the slope of a very small hill.
1: Absolutely. Orientation of rows well that's a long matter. I don't know if we will approach it uh, including in California. Some vineyards in California plant with a 33.4 degree compared to the moon compared to that. I will not go that far. Uh, I listen to those uh, young winemakers who are very sure themselves, usually. Uh, that's interesting. But it's a very complex matter. It has to do with the sun, of course, and uh, how to... Uh, the slope, uh, the, the two key factors. Slope, if the slope is strong, there is no choice. I mean, you should, should plant in the sense of the slope. If it is flat, uh, then the second uh, key factor is uh, avoid sunburn. And that's another matter which uh, which brings us to canopy management and that may be a little long and a little boring for you. Well, it's become a crucial thing at Dominus, right? Because you split the canopy and yes.
0: you actually divide what is the Napa Nook and the Dominus into two different wines based
1: on the side that's the sun side and the side that's not the sun side. Yes, so not, it's actually a
0: defining. Not thing.
1: on every vintage, of course. On a normal vintage, sometimes the sunny side and the shady side, as we call it, have no much difference. But on a vintage where we have those big heat waves at 100, 105, sometimes in August, then it's clear that the shady side is is more refined, and the, and then we separate the two sides. Yeah.
0: So I think that very few people get a chance to really, while they're still in their 20s, run one of the most important properties in the world with all the media attention that that might bring, with all the responsibility within the family that that might bring, and with all the chances to make mistakes on a very scrutinized level that that might bring. But you came in at Chateau Petrus in 1970, and what was that experience like for you?
1: Honestly, it was a very natural experience in that sense that first my father was so confident to put me in charge at such a young age 24 and so was my brother because my brother was already with extreme discretion uh, the real owner of petrus in in those years you know Uh, so they had full confidence in me and i was uh, completely free surprisingly to run i did it with devotion i loved it Uh, I think I did not measure at the time uh, what kind of an honor and responsibility it was. One point important, of course, it was not that famous at the time, you know. It's hard for people to realize. In the mid-70s, we could not sell the wine. I'll give you a perfect example. 75, of course, we had the severe crisis of 74 before, uh, financial crisis. Uh, We could not sell the wine. I was at Petrus full-time and sometimes stopping people on the road to invite them to taste. I know it looks improbable. The 75 vintage, nobody wanted the 75 vintage, you know. I had a visitor from England one day. Stopped by, he said, uh, yes, I was there. Yes, sir. Well, uh, please, well, uh, you are most welcome. And I took the sample from the, from the cask myself and he uh, said, It's very, very good. Can I purchase some? Yes. How much can I get? 100 cases. And that guy, he bought one, a private individual, 100 cases of Petrus 75 for 40 francs a bottle. I remember that. I know it looks improbable. So back to those stories, which are almost unbelievable today. Uh, We didn't have that much success in those years. So um, I had not the media pressure that you would imagine today. Uh, I was free. And besides, I was not at the risk of making a big mistake. First, I had a big team, including Jean-Claude Beruet, very talented, as we know. But we had many other chateaus. So I love to experiment, as you know. But then, of course, I, exp- I never experimented at Petrus, except the crop in seventy three. But otherwise, I would new products, new chemicals, whatever. I would uh, experiment in uh, some sh- other chateaus we had in Saint-Emilion, uh, on the low part of Saint-Emilion. If I made a mistake, that was uh, not the end. In the 70s, I began to cultivate bio, you know, with a bio approach. Everybody was laughing and then I understood what it meant at the end. It meant that very clearly, one year out of three, when the weather is cooperative, or which means perfect, uh, you make a beautiful wine with a bio-approach. One year out of three, you do so-so, you lose part of your crop. One year out of three, you lose 100% of your crop because the weather is not cooperative. So so uh, I, I that was in the 70s, you know, before it became fashionable. So now... We don't have a bio-approach anymore, but uh, we learned a lot from those experiences, and we tried to be as uh, respectful of nature as possible. So back to Petrus, maybe to your question, I don't know.
0: You came in at an interesting time. You were young, Beraway was young, Madame Labatt had passed away. In 61, yeah. What was it like trying to take the reins of that tarwar? What had been set in place,
1: what was important, and what did you learn early on there? In fact, it was uh, natural again. You, you see, uh, sometimes you don't measure your luck except when you lose the things in life. I think in many occasions of life. For me, it was, I was in charge. Uh, uh, well, the good thing, probably, I always consider myself, and I remember discussing it with Coin Menzelopoulos when she arrived in the early years at uh, the Margot. I was the caretaker, you know, uh, uh, or the steward, maybe. Uh, uh, I never considered myself as the owner. It was very embarrassing for me to see all those articles. Christian, wax owner of Petrus, I never thought that. I, I knew I was not owner, and I will never be, because uh, it was written before I arrived. Uh, so I was a steward, and I did my best. I loved it, needless to say. It was very rewarding. I never got a salary from Petrus uh, that was Clear for me, got a salary from Etablissement Jean Pierre Moix. I did that for love and I loved it so much. Yeah.
0: I don't have the most experience drinking Petrus in terms of, you know, I haven't had repeated times to try multiple vintages, so, which I think is probably a lot of people's <laughs> position, but it seems to me. And given what I just said, I don't have the most experience, but it seems to me that the vintage chart for Petrus, if you were to talk about the great Petrus, doesn't always match up for the vintage chart for the region one-to-one. Yes, the 98 is a great wine. 98 is a great wine for the region. But it seems like there are some peculiarities
1: in the chart. Am I right about that? Well, it's easy to understand. That's very unique clay, which is really almost unique at Petrus. Maybe you find one acre here or there allows the vines to have a a perfect regulation in terms of of humidity, in terms of water. And that's why Petrus is so good on uh, dry vintages, including 16, which you tested. It regulates perfectly the water level. That's the the unique specificity uh, about Petrus. It's perfect. Because, as you know, uh, the difference I spoke of uh, soils, uh, so many soils, including those gravelly soils around, when the, uh, where the, 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 roots go uh, 20 feet deep, if not more. At Petrus, they go three feet, no more. So they, they are stuck in that uh, strong, deep, uh, fin, we say deep, not that deep, but very intense clay and they find the the food and the substance and the humidity uh, perfectly on on those years. So we may have a year which is so soft for Bordeaux, and when Petrus will thrive because of that specific soil, you see. Were there moments at Petrus where you were surprised by the outcome? Uh, Petrus was always higher in alcohol uh, than its neighbors. Even in uh, those weak vintages of the 70s, we were always at 13 there's a natural richness. What is so special about Petrus, it is a wine of, with great character, I would say. Complexité is, is a word which is abused, but uh, there's, a, of course, a complexity in any great wine. Uh, but character, you know, it stands by itself. Uh, And it's, uh, it would very much be the image of my, of my father, even if he was very far from the vineyard in his lifetime, in my uh, 40 years, I saw him very rarely at Chateau Petrus himself, Uh, but he he was like uh, the, the, the father, not the godfather, but the father uh, above, uh, above me, of course, but uh, above the vineyard. The his spirit was there, if I, if I dare to say. And finally, like, like, uh, I will say, maybe I will use the word dignity. You see, it's a wine with dignity, and dignity you don't acquire that easily. And probably, maybe the only one I, I know at that point with dignity, yeah, at least on the right bank. When I read uh, wine books about Pomerol, a lot of
0: times they say, well, you know, the wines are more accessible younger than the great wines of the Medoc, maybe seven years or eight years instead of 10 or 12. But then when I taste Old Petrus, like a 59, uh, it's uh, incredible, like in terms of the aging. And so uh, does it age longer than some of the other properties in the region? Is it atypical in its ability to age? I mean, I know there's other... Structured wines and Pomeroy, I know, but.
1: It's, uh, I said, a wine with character, uh, and sometimes it's misunderstood, and I think Robert Parker underlined it on many occasions. Among the Pomeroys, which, as I said, are so approachable in their youth, that will not apply to Petrus. Petrus uh, has a natural structure. I will not say tannic structure, but a uh, uh, structure which makes it uh, uh a little, uh, how could I say, hautain in French, I would say, that dignité means that uh, here I am, I am what I am, and that's it, you see. So then it softens with age, but that uh, natural structure, I would say, is a man uh, who, who is... Uh, convince of, not of his quality, but of his strength, you see. If you were to
0: think about great vintages for the Pomerol region and great vintages for Petrus, if I were a passionate consumer who wanted to know, what should I be thinking about in terms of those?
1: Well, let's say in my own career, uh, 70 great vintage for Petrus and everywhere, 71 great vintage for Petrus and not everywhere, as you know. Uh, 73, a little more structured than a weak vintage for Bordeaux. 75, very good almost everywhere, but a special success for Petrus. 76, no comment, 77, 78, uh, which is so, so vintage. Petrus is very charming, very Burgundy-like, very unusual. In the 80s, clearly 82, 82 was a success everywhere. If I were to produce 82 again, I would uh, crop in the 10% more, and that would have been... Uh, 82 as a charm, unbelievable, but there would have been a little more density. Uh, 85 was really good, 86 or so 88 um, serious wine, a typical higher acidity. 89, maybe still my preferred vintage, 90, beautiful. Uh, vintage, like 92, was typical. 92 was a very rainy vintage. That's a vintage where I covered the soil with plastic. Uh, that was one of those crazy ideas I had. It was a big work, in fact, because we needed to cover uh, the soil with plastic and then to sew the plastic between the rows, you know, so that was a huge work. The consequence is that those heavy rains, we had, uh, if I remember correctly, believe it or not, 20 inches of rain in August. Unbelievable, that was the rainiest month ever in Bordeaux, August uh, '92. And then, of course, I sent uh, <laughs> the water to the neighbors, you know, <laughs> which was not very friendly. I had a few complaints, um, but we we made a better wine than the others because of that. Uh, it looks uh, improbable. I, I will never dare. I was uh, still young. I will never dare to do such things today. I mean, people will sue me. Probably, <laughs> we are no lawyers in those in those. Sorry, let's go, let's be serious. Uh, so, uh, 92, uh, 3 and 4, uh-huh. 95, delicious vintage, uh, a delicious vintage all over Bordeaux. Uh, a little uh, forgotten, but delicious, uh, 6, 7, uh, then the fourth uh, Trilogy, uh, 98, special success for Petrus, a fantastic bottle, great for all our wines. I had the La Fla Petrus 98 uh, last week, Trotanois 98 is very muscular. Petrus, uh, uh, 98, is flamboyant. It's due to an anecdote. I don't know. It will be probably too long to say that. In 98, uh, um, that's interesting after all. Usually, how do you decide the date of harvest? We decide by eating grapes. I have eaten uh, probably millions of uh, berries in my life. But that's at the last minute. Before then... You need to ask for your pickers to come and to select them early early enough. So usually the vineyard manager, Michel Gillet, very talented and serious guy, he picks, he's a peasant, so he wants uh, to save the the vintage. He wants the harvester to come on the early side. September 20, okay. Then the winemaker, Jean-Claude Berouet, he wants uh, the, the, the grapes to be fully ripe. So he decides... September 25 I'm the one in between and I'm, I take the final decision. So I say my real choice is 22nd or 23rd. Usually that's the way we, we proceed. In the 98, for some reason, I say, okay, this year, let's have the guys coming on the early side, 20 under one condition. If it is not perfectly ripe when they get there, we don't pick. We do anything. Et so they, they, they came on the 20th. And uh, the weather forecast was so good. Uh, Kavok, as they said at the time, which means uh, no no bad weather. I I was still a pilot in those years. No bad weather. So uh, for two days, three days, we used them cleaning the vines. And then uh, we had nothing to do. The weather was beautiful. So we decided to take those guys with buses. Uh, to the bassin d'Arcachon, which is not far. And they had one day at the beach, enjoying themselves, uh, drinking. We had brought magnums of wines. They could not believe they were paid go, doing that. So they were very sweet, very devoted. And uh, we came back and the weather forecast had changed. We had five days of nice weather. And, uh, and then the next morning, I said, okay, You know, we enjoy ourselves so far. Now we need to to pick. And the guys were so devoted. We picked from early morning to late evening. And without counting our hours, difficult in France. And on September 30th in the evening, we finished Petrus and all our top vineyards. And uh, on October 1st, it was pouring rain, two inches of rain, 40 millimeters to be precise. You know, th- that's a kind of an accident where uh, the eff- human effort uh, allows us to, to be better than, uh, or to be more successful on a given vintage than some others. Anyway, 99 good, 2000, uh, 2001, does uh, not showing too well recently. 2002, surprisingly good. I didn't expect it to be so good. 2005, beautiful. Six, beautiful. Uh, seven, pleasant. Uh, eight, uh, very good nine and ten i was not uh, completely in charge we were partly in charge we make the harvest and, and uh, but I, I was not taking the daily decisions anymore and more recently beautiful wines as well yeah with a slightly different approach
0: so we've spoken a lot about pomeroy but you also have property in santa and it's such a different terroir
1: so yeah uh, lime soils uh, I used to call them more intellectual, which is the wrong approach, clearly. They are more refined. Pomol is very bodily wines. I mean, they are uh, fleshy wines. Saint Emilion is, as I say, more intellectual, but a little more refined, honestly, more refined. I would dare to say that. A little more natural class, but less sex appeal. I can say. Uh, So we have been owners uh, of Chateau Magdalene, one of the first classified growth since 1952, which my father bought. And I must say that probably it was a a wine with a good success. I must say that probably I did not devote as much love as I should have to Magdalene because I was really stuck in, in the mud of Pomerol for so long. And, The result, uh, I'll give you an example, for instance, when we have those pickers, that that team, uh, when we finish Pomerol, usually, let's say we finish Pomerol October 5, and Saint-Emilion, the the gap between Saint-Emilion and Pomerol is at least two weeks, usually. Uh, Okay, we had the team, so say, oh, let's go and and tomorrow we pick Saint-Emilion, and whether it was perfectly ripe or not, so that was not very serious on my part. And uh, very often we picked Magdalene a little uh, too early, uh, which means the, the, the wine was sometimes delicious, but a little on the underripe uh, side. It had it, it, its fans uh, because uh, people... Uh anyway, so that's only when we purchased Chateau Belair, next door, a fantastic wine with a great history, uh, a little neglected in... Uh, in the 70s, 80s, and so on, uh, which used to belong to the Dubois-Chalon family, owners of Chateau Ozone in the meantime. And of course, Ozone took such a prestige in the 20th century, but before then, the top chateau in uh, Saint-Emilion was Chateau Belair, and I hope to restore it to that status one day. So we bought Belair in 08, uh, and we made a huge effort, uh, including a financial effort, because it's built on quarries, and we had to consolidate those quarries uh, with uh, Huge work! Uh, just uh, we sent concrete in those quarries to solidify. Uh, we sent one hundred ninety-eight thousand cubic meters of concrete, which is uh, something uh, uh, beyond belief. And I don't know if I will do it again. Anyway, we restored that uh, that vineyard forever. I think. Uh, That was the idea of my son. We said uh, those two vineyards are very imbricated, uh, Belair and Magdalene. And we joined the two vineyards and now we call them Belair Monange. Monange was the name of my grandmother, uh, which is after all is a beautiful name, my angel, so Belair Monange. It will take time. It will take twenty years, but as the potential in terms of terroir to be one of the very top wines of uh, of Saint Emilion, and I hope to to give a run to Ozone and my friend Alain Vautier, we are both uh, still there, but uh, in a very friendly approach. So, uh, there's big expectation. I mean, it, it's, uh, it will be my son's, uh, effort in the 20 coming years. Uh, it's a wine with a lot of complexity. Of course, that mineral character, which is dominant because of the terroir, is a little more less uh, friendly in terms of approach than any wine of Pomol. Uh, but, in terms of aging, it's fantastic. You know, I purchased the private cellar of Monsieur Du Bochallon, and we have vintages for Ozone down to 1831, and vintages of Belair down to 1816. And I began to drink uh, those old vintages of the nineteenth century. My son is very unhappy about that. He says, Dad, this is history. I said, Yeah, you will have your own history, but I like to have those few wines. Uh, of the 19th century, and I I drink them on a regular basis. I would say once a month, no more, let's say. But I intend to drink a lot of those wines. Uh, Mrs. Dubois chalon served me once, because we were very friends together. Uh, The the 1831 Ozone, the oldest bottle, I still have three, if I remember correctly. Uh, you, You know, those wines, they speak of history, thinking of 1831. 1816, more than 200 years. I wanted to drink the 1816 last year for 200 years old. And my son said, no, no, Dad, you are not allowed to do that. <laughs> anyway, no, no, this is a wonderful experience. It's very challenging. Uh, it takes time, you know. We need to restore the, the vineyard completely. We are going to build a new winery with Herzog and Demeron. There, They were there last week. It's a very exciting project. It's a long-term project. You know, in a... Venture in the wine business is a long-time Venture. That's the key. Well, you know, let let me tell you the story. The day before I signed uh, Dominus Venture, I had lunch with André Chilichev and Dorothy. And um, I was still young and I asked André, what will be your best advice? Do you think I have a chance to be successful? You know, oh, the vineyard is very good. Don't worry, Christian, you can go. I have only one advice to give you. And he gave me a little toy, uh, which was uh, two little shoes, plastic shoes, one inch long and with a, a rubber between them. And you, you turn that rubber and then the, the, the shoes, uh, they moved extremely slowly. Uh, and he said, that's the key to your success question. If you move slowly in the wine business, you will be successful. Just to end the story, I gave, of course, the, the kids were young. I gave the, the, that little toy to the kids and it was destroyed in five minutes. Uh, anyway, so th- that's the secret. And this is why when I see those billionaires arriving in the wine business and they want an overnight success, I'm going to the, yeah, they get the, the best of these, the best winemaker, the best, and I, they make the best of the best wine. That's a joke for me, you know. And usually it ends poorly, but, uh, so it's a long-term venture. I mean, if I could sign uh, for Bel Air Monange to be uh, great in 20 years, I would sign. I no rush. It cannot be great next year. It will be great in 20 years.
0: What are some of the differences working with a Saint terroir like that on the escarpment? Because it's higher up than a lot of Saint
1: Ah, it's much more difficult. Uh, for Molly's flight, it's a piece of cake. Uh, Saint Emilion, you have slopes, you have uh, the cliff collapses. Uh, uh, the, the rock is uh, sometimes no not as uh, no, no more than half a foot deep. Uh, the soil, I mean. Uh, uh, it's much more difficult, much more demanding, much less rewarding. Uh, yeah, it, it's, it's more of a long-term venture, yes, definitely, but we'll make it.
0: But it seems like your dad, uh, must've had, uh, you know, he must've had some, uh, soft spot for it because it was, uh, inconvenient in a way for him to have that property, the Magdalen property.
1: Yeah. Well, it was a question of opportunities. So, if I restore those uh, quarries of Saint-Emilion, which go beyond Bel-Air, it's only because uh, Saint-Emilion was the first uh, uh, village uh, to welcome my family in 1930, when they arrived from uh, my grandparents in Seoul themselves in Saint-Emilion. So I feel uh, that I have a, a debt, you would say, a debt to Saint-Emilion which I will pay in my lifetime, yeah, including uh, I want to help the town to restore some of the buildings, yeah. You mentioned Napa and Telechef and moving slowly, and your
0: second venture in California has come about recently after, uh, you know, you've been there since the early 80s, and now you have the Ulysses Winery. And and how did that come about?
1: When I developed uh, Dominus uh, 30 years ago, People considered the, the appellation Yonville as a secondary appellation. It was our fault. I mean, when I arrived at Dominus, there were 11 varietals, you know. Uh, and the publicity for Yonville was a fantastic appellation w- which can grow anything. I don't think it's a good publicity, you know. They, they produce white, Chardonnay, Napa Gamay, Johannesburg, Riesling, everything, 11 varietals. So that was the worst and uh, then people consider that uh, there was no great wine out of Yonville. I, 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 hope we have proved the, the reverse, but anyway. So, uh, I always wondered why is Ogville considered the best appellation? Even if in those years, Rutherford was considered to be the best. Today it's Ogville, clearly thanks to Bob Mondavi and uh, his fantastic uh, work he has done for Ogville and for Napa Valley. Um, I know the valley rather well because I bike. You know, I bike in the evening. I go, I bike, so uh, I know the valley really well. I bike in the vineyards. I mean, I have a big bike and I bike. And I I knew that vineyard, uh, which belonged to the Swanson, they were friends. And one day, Clark told me a oh, question, by the way, I'm going to sell that piece of land, uh, 40 acres. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm interested. He said, uh, he gave me a price. I said, okay, I purchased it right away. And we did that very fast. And the vineyard, of course, was uh, entirely irrigated. So I, and I had to replace it completely. So I purchased it in 2008. And I had to replant to help the old vines to restore. Uh, and finally, so we, we came out with our first vintage was 12. Uh, good, but not great at all. Uh, pleasant. Uh, No more. And 13 was much better. And 14 is good. And 15 is very, very good. So uh, I have great expectation... Very happy to discover that it was different in style from Dominus. It's just one mile north of Dominus. Of course, on the same side of the valley. We, we go th- through a private way, which is very convenient. We, we cultivate from Dominus. And the wild is very different. Uh, almost as we would say from Pomerol to Saint-Emilion. Higher acidity, more uh, very different style. Uh, I cannot wait to see it in uh, five to ten years when uh, the vineyard will have been completely replanted with top quality. You know, when I signed with my partners in, in that philosophy called approach, uh, which I descri- described earlier, uh, the third sentence after no acidification and no irrigation was, I need 20 years to produce a good wine. And uh, uh, I admire my partners. I mean, you know, many Americans who will go with a young man who says I need 20 years. Gosh, I'm so grateful to them for their confidence. For Ulysses, I need 10 years because I, I, I made all the mistakes at Dominus. Uh, I have the right staff, uh, perfect people, wonderful people. I have the right stuff in terms of vegetable, uh, so we know exactly what to plant where, uh, the rootstock, uh, which a little bit of PV, a bit of Cabernet Francona, uh, so it will go much faster. Ten years. Beginning uh, 2018, We'll have great Ulysses and that will be a competition within ourselves, which we love, you know, uh, because it's, uh, even if it is the same team, competition for us between Trotanois and La Petrus is fascinating. Some people prefer Trotanois, some people La Petrus. I'm sure it will be the same between Dominus and Ulysses in a few years. Yeah, We were very lucky to find the name Ulysses, which was used by a small winery in Washington State. So we, we bought the name. And I love the name Ulysses. And for me, at my age, sometimes I say it's my last journey, but who uh, never knows. Yeah. Like
0: Odysseus, Christian Moyex has come home. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you so much, Levy. It was such a pleasure. Christian Moyex of establishment Jean-Pierre Moyex in the right bank of Bordeaux, and also Dominus in Ulysses in the Napa Valley. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton.